All right. Welcome to episode two uh, of this unnamed podcast, because I don't give a shit about things like names and fluff and bullshit. Uh, so I am super happy to have Mike Isretel on this podcast. Mike, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, you know, I was just saying that I don't want to uh, have all the good conversation happen before. And because I really do feel like that's what ends up happening. And then it's like this wonderful stuff gets lost and uh, nobody gets to hear it. So, um, yeah, just if you would like to introduce yourself and go through the typical sort of a thing there, uh, please feel free. You know, my PR guy said I need to be able to write down all the names of the podcasts I'm on. So this is just just as a start. This is unacceptable. Mm. And I'm just going to have to. I don't know, take legal action, potentially. You're stealing my time for an unnamed podcast. Yeah. Hard to file a lawsuit than if there's no name. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe I might just call it, it podcast. Dude, that's a good idea. Difficult Google search term for people finding it. But can you imagine you're in the elevator with someone, talk for a bit. They're like, you're in great shape. Do you have like a podcast? You're like, yep, it's called podcast. And you walk out of the <laughs> elevator door. She's like, all right, that guy was insane. Nice. It's kind of like the Washington football team, which I'm really <laughs> upset that they're now the commanders because that name sucks. Yes. And it, like when they were the football team, I really liked that. Amazing. Amazing. Um, dude, thank you so much for having me on. Did, uh, you want me to do a spiel about who the fuck I am? Also, oh, I'm sorry. Can I swear? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. I'm Dr. Mike Isertel and I have a PhD in sport physiology East Tennessee State University. I've been a professor for many years now teaching exercise science, sport science, nutrition, strength training, hypertrophy training. I've written a bunch of books. I'm designed apps and other digital products for Renaissance periodization. And we have a team of uh, dozens of coaches that coach people. And we have a YouTube channel that apparently people like to hear me say nonsense on. So that's it. Um, yeah. And for people that don't know, Mike, yeah, I would just say that you have a uh, a laundry list of accomplishments that goes on for a long ways. And, um, you know, but I'm kind of interested, you know, I'm terrible at getting to know people. I'm terrible at small talk. I'm terrible at all that kind of stuff. You're going to be a great podcaster. Oh, the, the, either the best or the worst. You know what I mean? But. You know, in all honesty, I kind of put this together because I wanted more opportunities to talk with people and have conversations with people that I actually want to talk with. And it gets harder and harder, I feel like, to actually find people that I want to talk with in life. It's like I just pigeonhole myself more and more into a specialty area or whatever. And it's just like I have no one to have a decent conversation with eventually. So that's really what I wanted to do with this. And, um, but I, I would say that oftentimes I'll just get sucked into like purely talking only the science and things like that. Whereas I would like to kind of get to know people. So I am kind of curious, like where, where are you actually from? Like, where'd you grow up? Mm. My first seven years of life were spent in uh, Moscow in the former Soviet union, now Russia. And um, it was an idyllic childhood Papa would come home from the factory, but so, I'm just kidding. That'd be kind of sweet. You know, he, it's the 1920s, as far as I know. Everyone's childhood in a foreign country is in the 1920s, as far as I want to believe. Um, but no, yes, I grew up in Russia uh, until I was seven. And when I was seven years old, we came to America. And obviously, we chose the most progressive flying cars 
uh, and Monorails Megalopolis, which is Detroit, Michigan. And uh, duh. <laughs> uh, hilariously enough, um, when we got to Detroit, we were incredibly impressed. And I tell people that story every now and again uh, about how much Russia really sucks. <laughs> you know, like, at least sucked at the time. It sucks less now. But I could say that a few months ago, but now with the whole Russia thing, it's probably like on its way to sucking again, just mm. as bad as it used to. Um, but yeah, like I, I grew up and had like a very relatively normal suburban childhood and teenage experience in, in metropolitan Detroit. Um, I have like an, I have an interesting thing about um, I had like a situation with attention deficit disorder that probably like impacted my life. A grandiose deal. I can get into that bullshit if you want. Yeah. I'm but, actually uh, kind of curious about that. You know, I, I uh, I remember reading the book Spark, and that one's on the topic of like how exercise impacts mental health, and it kind of goes through a lot of the research into uh, you know various mental health related disorders. And one of the areas that it highlights is is ADD. Uh, and what I found interesting about it is that it's not just this complete inability to focus but rather oftentimes presented as something where you have this incredible ability to focus on one thing, but oftentimes at the cost of that, other parts of your life can just fall by the wayside. And um, so after reading it, it was like, shit, I think that I kind of fit that bill because sure I can write a book or a dissertation, but I can't like even like go to my mailbox or pay bills on time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or like, you know, wash my laundry. Like I'm completely unable to function in some areas of life that most people have no problem doing, but I can like really funnel my my interests into something that most people can't do. So is that something that sort of is 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 related to you with that? Because you have an incredible ability to focus. Yeah. I'm afraid that was something that came much later in life. Uh, I had the, the variation of ADD where I couldn't really even focus that hard on the things I liked the most. Mm. Um, I certainly could focus on them harder than the things I didn't like. And the things I didn't like, I could barely pay attention to at all. But like, so for example, um, you know, I liked the idea of math when I was a kid. My dad is a, was a, uh, a research physicist in Russia and a mathematics professor in the United States and um, it was sort of understood that, I don't know if it was understood that I was to be good at math, but my, my dad is very proud of his genetic lineage and he had hoped I was, was good at it. And I wanted to be good at it. I found the idea of math interesting, but uh, past a certain age, particularly when they started uh, teaching equations and you had to move things around the, uh, the equal sign, I found math almost prohibitively difficult because I couldn't maintain an attention span for long enough to keep the equation in my head and to apply the processes to it sequentially so that it could be resolved. And so that I I couldn't even do math barely at all. I think I was like by the number of missing assignments and scores on tests, the worst math student in my eighth grade, middle school, middle school, not class, the whole thing. (laughs) Uh, Certainly my eighth grade class, I suppose. But uh, there's lots of students. I was like three or 400 students or something like that. So, um, it's uh, that was definitely a thing, and so my my touch deficit disorder uh, presented to me, you know, I didn't know I had it right because so first of all in Russia that they just didn't catalog disorders like that, um, and if this was in the mid '90s to late '90s when I was going to school as a, a young and then middle aged child, and uh, I just thought that 
other students had like almost magical powers to be able to like do their homework. I remember I saw a girl writing next to me in the second grade and she was writing in these very clean, neat lines of text. And I was just like, that's like she a fucking robot or some shit. Like how the fuck am I supposed to do that? My handwriting was terrible and I could barely pay attention long enough to write. Like it was cognitively painful for me to write an entire sentence because it took so much effort to focus on writing one sentence that when people produced entire volumes of work, I was like, this is insane. I remember when I was in second grade, I wished uh, I dreamt of a machine that could do my homework for me because I would really like resolve all of my life difficulties. Um, and so I was, I was like quite, quite useless. And um, I, I did show sparks of intellect, you know? So like uh, when I was very young uh, age, I guess four to seven or four to eight um, adults that spoke to me were like, what the fuck? Like, this kid is super fucking smart. Like, and they would tell my parents this, of course, my parents would say yes. And then I would underperform in school to an insane degree. And they would become very, very disappointed because obviously I was lazy. You know, that's like when you're working with no knowledge of psychology, it's like, if you're either stupid or lazy, (laughs) one of the two things, possibly both, they knew I wasn't stupid. So then I had to be lazy and I got a lot of shit for that. And the, the fucked up thing psychologically is I thought I deserved all that shit. Because I was like, well, yeah, I'm fucking a piece of shit. Like, I disagree. I also agree with them that I should be doing schoolwork, but I can't. Um, and it's clearly not because I'm, I, I didn't know how intelligent I was, but I thought, you know, like, I'm not the stupidest person. Like, you know what? Even when you're eight and you're acting with other classmates and they say some shit, you're like, wow, that kid is dumb as rocks. <laughs> like, that wasn't me. I was like, yeah, I can, like, figure stuff out reasonably well, but guess I'm just not smart enough to do high-level schoolwork. Um, and you know, it was very tumultuous. I got yelled at a lot, you know, uh, disciplined with belt, et cetera. And then at some point, my mom actually began to pursue her master's degree in social work in the United States as a second uh, career. And like about halfway through her master's degree, she was like, holy shit, <laughs> my son meets every single diagnostic criteria for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Maybe we should take him to a child psychologist. Mm-hmm. So I got to child psychologist. He ran me through a bunch of tests. I scored uh, around the genius cutoff for verbal IQ, like when they just ask you questions. And then I scored re- really close to the mentally retarded. It's actually a technical term cutoff yeah. for performance IQ because I just couldn't focus enough to do anything. And they're like, okay, so this is highly atypical. Most people who are mentally retarded don't score very high in anything. And most people who are genius just score really high in everything. So something's going on. And then they applied some more uh, tests and they were like, yeah, you know, it's very likely that your son has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And my parents are like, what are the treatment options? And my parents are old school Russian Jews. They're super against drugs, just uh, pharmacology. They're just on a, like a, a, I would say philosophical basis, but it's more of an emotion than a philosophy. Um, So they were like, ah, that's stupid. And we're not going to do that. And then, you know, thank fucking God, my child psychologist was like, well, you know, uh, the medication actually works very well and not much else works all that well for kids of this age. And so my, my, my dad actually asked him, he's like, can we give him like a sugar pill, like a placebo? And he's like, yeah, like we would love to do that, but it just doesn't do anything. Like your son actually has a thing he can't do. It's not like he doesn't have enough confidence in himself or some shit like that. It's just like, you know, disabled, it's mentally disabled. Mm. So yeah, so so I got prescribed Adderall, the original and best. And it was ninth grade. I was in math class that first morning that I took it. I took five milligrams, I'll never forget, which is a preposterously small dose. But you know, oftentimes if you have a serious problem, you're sensitive to incredibly low doses of stuff because it's a huge change for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if somebody's hypogonadal, 
you know, production of testosterone. You give them like one injection of test, it changes their whole life. Like, oh, where if someone has normal test production, you give them an injection, they're like, ah, I feel more irritable. You're like, okay, get out of here. You don't have low test. It's a bit like um, minimum effective volume for someone that's never exercised. Right. Life. Yes, exactly. So I was, at the time I was, I was receiving the lowest score in, in math class. I was getting a 16%, I believe, from, from memory serves. Like, out of 100, that's really terrible. You know, like, uh, an F is anything below 60%. So 16 is like extra credit F. Uh, and it was, it was um, algebra. And it was like, we had tracks in school. We had like the low level, mid-level and high level track for, you know, kids of various abilities at the time. And I was in a low level track, duh, because I failed everything up until that point. And I remember coming to school. I'll never forget. This is one of the most, this is one of the most um, impactful moments in my entire life. I didn't know what to expect. I just took this pill. Like, I had no fucking clue. I didn't even know it was possible to pay attention more than I was. You know, like, obviously, you're, you can't really, you don't have a very detailed theory of mind when you're fucking 14 years old. So I sure as hell didn't. So in any case, I sat down and uh, the teacher started to ask us, like, drawing equations on the board and started asking us questions about them. And I was like, I know the answer to that. And he's like, oh, what is it? And I was like, bam, and he got it right. And I was like, he drew it again. I was like, this is preposterously easy. This is the same equation with just a few different variables plugged in. And I was like, answer. And he's like, yep, I was like, correct. But I just kept doing that the entire class. I think I was the only person to speak the entire class. So everyone's like, Jesus Christ, the fuck is this kid on? And I just got everything right. And I was like, oh my God, math is so fluid and easy. And I came up to my instructor and I was like, hey, I'm going to be your best student from now on. And he, what the fuck is somebody who's failed your class for forever says that to you? What are you supposed to say? He was like, okay, <laughs> fine. And then I went to Spanish class was next and I knew Spanish <laughs> and then every other class was next. And I knew that, or I was able to, to deal with it. And then, it, so like that was in the middle or end towards the end of ninth grade, I had failed most of ninth grade. So I had to, I had to go to summer school that year and it, summer school, man, I, I put my fucking flex on. I, I, I got no lower than 100% on any assignment. And like, you know, summer school is usually folks that not that sharp, not the sharpest yeah. folks. So I was like, the only fucking like nerd out of tons of people that maybe the school wasn't for them at that point in their lives. Um, some of them future criminals, as I know now, as I know these people. Uh, but in any case, um, once 10th grade hit, uh, I finished. So I was in geometry then, just the uh, regular level math for that year. And I finished the entire book in two months. And I came up to the teacher and was like, can I just test out of this class? And she's like, what the fuck? Uh, okay. And so the, I just tested right out of the next class too. And then I was in advanced math. And then I did the same thing with most of the other school. And by the time I was a senior, I was one of the top ranked math students in the state of Michigan, the best math student for several years back and forth in my uh, high school. Uh, and I was like, holy fuck. And then after that, the um, medication started to have more cost than benefits. My brain was maturing. So in college, I got into a great school, University of Michigan was the only school I applied to. And I, I, I messed the stand. I, I fucked the standardized tests up like godlike performance. I think like four questions wrong total on the entire ACT or some shit like that. So they let me go to a nice school. And then I fucked up and failed a bunch of classes because I had to stop taking the medication because it just provided me with all of the downsides and seemingly none of the upsides. It's like, um, I could probably describe it as like the second half of a, of a meth trip for someone that's been doing meth for a long time. Like yeah, you're only yeah. anxious, irritable, sleep deprived, and you can't focus on anything and you're just miserable. Yeah. You're like hiding in a kitchen thinking the cops are knocking on the door. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, so in any case, 
I was like, oh, God damn it. My brain's broken again. But then I, yeah, I, I came off of the medication. I took a, a half year off of school, worked instead, and then st- slowly started to be like, oh, I can think about stuff and I can do some work. Re-enrolled, went into kinesiology because that was my passion at that point. And then I got like B's and C's that first semester, A's and B's that second semester. Then after that, mostly A's. Master's program, I was a very good student. PhD program, I was a superlative student. And that was the birth of Dr. Mike world-renowned idiot so it was a trip that's um you know that's why i kind of wanted to to do this to learn those things about people and um you know those formative things because i'm always interested like when someone is a hyper achiever like what pushes them towards that you know do you think that some of those early struggles had a lot of impact and like kind of pushing you to strive for a lot of success? Maybe. Uh, It's very likely. Um, There was a stupid metalcore song. I forget what the band was. I'm sure someone else is naming out. Uh, The song is called What Drives the Weak. And that title just really resonated with me. It's just like, well, duh. The desire to not be weak anymore. (laughs) You know, like what drives the strong is a better question. Right. Um, But uh, yeah, so I think at least in part, um, so to start with, I very much valued formal reasoning and academic success, even though I was a very little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that's certainly genetic. Some of that is environmental. I mean, from a Russian Jewish family, like Jesus Christ, like, you know, that's what we do. <laughs> We're the best in the world at that shit. And if mm-hmm. it's like, um, man, you know, dare I say something uh, mildly politically incorrect, although you know, I don't think it is. It's like, it's like being African-American and being shitty at every sport you try. Mm-hmm. That's some shit like white people think that's cool, but all your black friends are like, especially when you're young, they're like, you suck. And you're like, I yeah. do suck. And you actually feel like you suck because it's like a thing like the community really values, you know, like right. if someone's like, you could at least rap, right? And you're like, nope, have no flow either. And they're like, oh man, you know, and like you can have your own values and develop them later as an adult. But when you're in a certain community, the shit that, that's important seems important to you and it really feels important to you. You know, I never felt like, my parents' expectation of academic success was top-down imposed to me, and I didn't agree with it. Like, I remember watching, um, oh, fuck, what movie was that? It was, uh, what's that dumbass 80s high school movie, Breakfast Club? Remember the Breakfast Club? Where all yeah, the kids yeah. are being punished, and they're like just fucking off. And, uh, and I remember watching it when I was in high school, when I was like already uh, on medication and everything. I was already a super achiever. I remember watching that movie the entire time thinking like, you guys pissed away eight hours and you didn't do any schoolwork. What the fuck is wrong with you? I would have fucking finished a whole textbook during that time. I don't need to talk to anybody. So to me, it was really, really tough to square those. And by the time that my brain started to work normally, I had had more or less a lifetime of just feeling stupid and inadequate. Um, and, and it's kind of like, you know, when, when uh, the, the little kid that turns into Shazam in the comics uh, when he like finally gets powers, he's just been beat up his whole life. Like it's really meaningful to him. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I felt like when I got on medication for the first time. It's like, oh man, you know, I really cherish the ability to use my mind productively because I have been without it for so long. It's like, you know, uh, when my grandma, and this is actually a story from many people from Eastern Europe who emigrated, when my grandma saw her first American grocery store, uh, it was like full of food, uh, crazy amount of variety and, and volume. She cried. Uh, you know, most people don't cry when they see a grocery store because they're all the same. They've seen them their whole lives. It's something you've never been without. When you've actually starved, 
seeing a grocery store with what I would call nominally priced goods, like, oh, this is a dollar, this is two dollars. Holy shit, watch out. Right. Uh, it, it's an emotional experience that doesn't just leave you. So I think me being unable to rise up to what I felt like was my destiny for so long probably left me with a bit of a desire to really push the pace. I certainly, you know, like the, actually the idea to me of wasted gifts makes me uncomfortable even as I discuss it right now. Um, it, you know, what a sad thing that you were destined for these things. And when you were able to do them, like I remember one kid and this is all, it's all in good fun, but this one kid who was super smart in my grade, he um, did what a lot of other kids do at that time. He was bragging to me about like how little time he spent doing homework and still got good grades. And I told him straight up, I was like, dude, with as smart as you are, you could be a fucking God. If you did tons of homework, like what, what are you you're getting when you like able to brag? Like, okay, so you can brag that you're that smart that you can succeed with doing almost nothing. But imagine if you did more than nothing. Imagine if you did, uh, you know, everything you could, you would become unbelievable. And I took that philosophy, especially into my PhD program eventually, where I would just sit in the um, lab with uh, often alone, sometimes with a few other overachiever friends. And we just sit there and do research and read and research and read and think and design templates and all this other stuff for hours and hours and hours and see no daylight. And I knew that all of that was me honoring my, my gifts, I guess, or honoring my potential. And also, I, 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 what was I going to be able to tell people later? Like, oh, yeah, I used to be really smart when I was younger, but I didn't try. So I'm still smart, I guess. Like, that's cool if you're going to skeet into somebody and have smart children. But like, that's the only thing that's worth at that time. So I, I, I always made sure to work, you know, as hard as I could reasonably work without psychologically breaking in half. Uh, and I'd still apply that to this very day. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, like, training as well. you know, with, with um, you're in a good place in life. And does that hunger ever go away? You know, like, do things interfere with that uh, for you from the perspective of like wanting to learn more? Is there ever a point where you're like, eh, it's not even worth it? Like, you know, does that does that come into your life at all? Or are you pretty much able to just continue to march on? When I'm very overreached from training and from work, it sometimes feels like a march that I don't want to do. And I have to will myself to do it. Those moments are relatively rare. Most of my impetus for work is a pull. It's a drive. It's it's taking me there. I'm not pushing to get it. It's a compulsion. So, um, you know, like I have to meaningfully take a look at my to-do list every morning and reduce how much I'm putting on it so that I don't end up working until 9 p.m. at night and never even sit down with my wife to watch a little bit of TV. It's like left to my own devices. I would just continue to work until like I started bleeding out of my eyes or something. Mm. And one of my biggest fears is overtraining in a sense, uh, to use the technical definition of, of overreaching so bad that you almost never come back to past performance. I don't over, I don't want to overtrain my ability to do mental uh, work, uh, psychological work. Um, and, and so I have a huge fear for that. So I'm very, very good usually about applying recovery uh, modalities and taking time away from work, taking some weekends. Um, one of the reasons that I do, I recreationally use uh, edible marijuana on weekends is because it, it so precludes me from doing any meaningful work that I have a good excuse to stay the fuck away from my laptop. Because otherwise, I'd, I literally, like my wife and I wake up on a Saturday and be like, what are you going to do? Like, oh, do a little bit of work. Six hours later, we both emerge from wherever we were doing work. Like, mm. we should probably chill out. So for me, it's like, I'm, I'm for sure a workaholic. Um, and 
Uh, I usually have a number of projects and ideas for future projects that is like a multiple of 10 of things I can actually realistically accomplish at any one point. And that gives me quite a bit of, um, I tell you what, Pat, this is like pretty uh, candid. It, it, um, it gives me a significant amount of consternation. It gives me a significant amount of negative thoughts that I have to deal with. Um, the tragedy of not being able to have as high a work throughput as I have an idea generation throughput. Um, and I'm, I'm working as hard as I can, as much as I can, that is sustainable, right. but I have way more ideas to work on than I want to. I would, I would love you know, if, if we live to see the time when either genomically or cybernetically, we can enhance intelligence or offload some tasks on the AI. Oh my God, I'd love to live to see that day. I have so much to do and think about. I almost rarely get into a situation where I'm like, nothing interests me anymore. I don't give a shit. I'm, I'm always in like, man, like, and I have like a bunch of intellectual hobbies, like I'm fascinated with economics, politics, psychometrics, which is like the science of mental testing. I wish I could just spend hours a day reading about that stuff and learning about it, but I can't because I got to do the stupid kinesiology work. Sure, and so for me, sure. it's like a totally different problem in, in most respects than it is for, like, I rarely have to be like, all right, just shut up and get this work done. Of course, when you're just starting to sit down to go to work, sometimes there can be that like kind of, uh, momentum lethargy where you're like oh this shit you type real slow but then once i get out of a flow state holy shit you know i had to i was one minute late for your podcast because i like finished work and i was like holy shit i got a i got a thing to do so right. for me it's it's quite the opposite you know I, I mean i can relate i just have the um the either complete insane uh manic side of working and then after i do something i'll go into like a depressive non-work mode for an extended period of time and then i just get so sick of myself like disgusted with how fucking lazy and pathetic i've become that it like makes me angry enough to kind of go back in and start another project but sure. in a lot of ways it's almost like i look at how long i have to live and then kind of think backwards of like, fuck, like there's no way I'm going to ever be able to learn or read or be able to study all of the things at any significant level of depth that would be, it's not possible. Like just from a pure calendar time perspective. And it's kind of like, well, either I would like to be able to, I don't want to live longer because I actually do find life to be fairly challenging uh, and it's like fatiguing <laughs> yeah exactly like it's enough like and also like you have to clear the way for new shit uh, because you know old shit just fucking you know clutters and, and it makes a mess at a certain point but it's I would like to be able to like enhance the speed of the download of information you know if there was some way to be able to accomplish that because it really is just a time and rate game at a certain point you know so but my next question is of the things that you've done, like what, what task or what project that you finished is the thing that you look back at and are most proud of at this point, at this point in time? Well, first of all, I have some tasks in the works that, that were really, I'd be much more proud of than anything I've ever done. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, for corporate reasons, I can't disclose what those sure. are. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll tell you this. So before I answer this question, I'll give you this nugget. I rarely ever bask in the glory of what I have accomplished. Mm -hmm. Some combination of, to a small extent, I feel like I'm being conceited and I don't like feeling like that. 
They're like, all right, you did this great thing. Slow fucking clap. Walk off the stage. Fuck off. Um, I don't, you know, basking to a certain extent makes me feel weird. And another thing is I get so uh, excited and passionate about the next thing I want to do. But as soon as I get my one thing accomplished, I'm like, what's next? Oh, my God. And I, I don't have to ask. It's already in my to-do list. And it's been there for months, if not years. I'm like, I can't wait to get started on this new thing. Mm-hmm. And then I do the new thing. And by the time I finish it, I'm like, hey, that was great. But it's kind of the process for me is great for its own sake. Like, so, for example, uh, you know, I still still work on the app. It's always getting updated. But we have the RP Diet Coach app. And I, I built probably, like, like, the vast majority of the of the logic for that. And when I was doing it, it was incredibly fulfilling. Um, when myself, Jared and James built the logic for an upcoming app, I can't talk about. <laughs> it's not diet. It could be training, but you know, if I say too much, people would just badger me to death until it never mm-hmm. releases. Uh, when I, when, when we wrote that logic, um, I wrote most of it and James and Jared inspected it for me. And we had multiple, sessions of, you know, why did you say this instead of that? I was so enthralled in that experience and so proud of what I had created. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, like, uh, have you ever seen the movie Terminator 2? Oh, I have. Excellent. Enough times to get the references to some extent? I, I've seen it enough times to write an entire book that used every chapter was a quote from the movie uh, as, a, wow. as a starting point and a muse for the right. scientific information that came from it. Yeah. Excellent. So, so, uh, there was a point at which they were in, like, I guess they, they went to Cyberdyne and, uh, Dyson, the scientist, um, he started like walk them through the, the arm and the piece of skull. And they, he talked about the microchip that they, the CPU that they found. And he like got these like glowing eyes and he was like, we were doing radical stuff, stuff we would never thought of, you know, and you were like that glimpse into the future of your own industry would for me be the most profound possible religious experience ever. Like I, I've said this before, I would like to, I would be very comfortable dying if I looked up into the sky and it was covered with drones. Like, yes, robots are taking over. Finally, it'd be amazing. Right. But like, to me, I get that sensation when I finish a major project that has tons of mathematical intricacies. I'm like, look at this. And I can imagine giving myself this several years ago and being like, look at this. And I would have already been knowledgeable enough to inspect the, the logic and be like, oh, but that they, but that they account for this. Oh my God. And in such a, such a, uh, a beautiful way and, and in such a succinct way. So for me, the process is, is really fun. So, so I guess, you know, building those apps or the app ultrastructure is to me one of my, uh, it's not something I walk around with and I'm proud about, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but it certainly uh, at the time when I was doing it, it felt like a, like a really awesome thing to be working on. It's just, just fucking really cool. Maybe I can reframe it then. What do you feel like is the most useful thing that you've created that the world now has? Oh, I see. Um <laughs> If, if, we, if we measure use by the amount of money people are willing to trade back for it, uh, which is a very good way to measure use of the mm-hmm. RP Diet app by a long shot, there's yeah. made a gazillion dollars. But um, the, uh, you know, a lot of that credit goes to the engineers that built the fucking thing. And yeah. So my idea is in the relatively minimal by comparison. I will say, I think it was the best realistic guess is um, the 
two hit combo of the scientific principles of training and the scientific principles, or sorry, the principles of strength training and then hypertrophy training later. Mm-hmm. Strength training was the, um, hyper, the hypertrophy training book is more holistic. It's more complete. It's more thought out. It's more correct. It's newer. Um, and I, I, as a standalone work, I'm probably the most proud of it than any other book that I had a hand in writing. But the scientific principles of strength training was many people's first time exposure to what we call um, modern periodization. As yeah. Back when we wrote the book, um, uh, Greg Knuckles and I actually wrote a, a two-part article together called There is Only One Kind of Periodization. <laughs> because people are like, you know, what kind of periodization? Do you linear? Are you doing block? Are you doing undulating? And, and, and we had to be like, look, every single attempt at periodization that is intelligent has linear elements, has block elements, has undulating elements. They're actually called, you know, intramicrocycle volume and intensity variations. Undulating is just a cool term people use to describe that. So into this world of everyone's got their own idea about how shit work. You had Louis Simmons, you had Mel Sif, uh, you had all this other stuff. We went in with uh, James Hoffman and we were sort of like, hey, you know, there is a grand ultrastructure to this. Um, I, I think the scientific principles of strength training maybe is in our time or in the last five to 10 years comes, comes as close to a grand unified theory of strength training as, 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 as was possible at the time at the very least. And the thing is, is I didn't come up with all that stuff myself. Um, uh, it was taught to me in a much more truncated, much less expanded form in graduate school by Dr. Mike Stone. And it, except so, you know, he had like three or four of the principles instead of like seven or eight. And he never really expounded on them as much. He maybe didn't see the interconnections between them or the implications to other sports as much, or maybe just didn't have the time to do it. Cause geez, that guy accomplished like probably more than I ever will. Um, but he planted that seed. And I was like, at the time we were learning this class, I was like, this is the fucking key you can understand all sport training with like eight fucking principles and i knew a couple were missing so i threw those in there and then we wrote the book and then i had a bunch of people who i thought were very smart very good coaches contact me after the book was written at some various times and they were like dude i don't give a fuck who wrote any books before this this is the book on strength that's it it's the last book you'll ever need and i was like of course it's not the last book you'll ever need but like it was just a oh man you know like we really we put together the core principles that everyone had only been alluding to up at that point. Mm-hmm. And apparent contradictions between training styles could be seamlessly resolved with just being like, Hey, I actually had, um, uh, since then as a professor I had projects in my class where I had kids uh, pick uh, students, kids, kids relatively students pick a training philosophy like West side or five through one or something and be like, rate this philosophy on how it attends to the principles which principles is it lacking on? Like Westside does great on variation, real bad on specificity, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how would you modify this in order to make it check the boxes of the principles better? And all of a sudden you have an objective criterion set on which to judge all programs. And uh, interestingly enough, you with your book did that with uh, the sort of aspects of human movement, which was, I was never really that interested in. Um, I, I knew enough of it to get by as a coach but I was much more of a theoretician than a coach. Um, I think you did the same thing with uh, the big patterns is like, 
it, 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 now it's like, if you have a question about how the body moves and how it should move, how you should train it, you just look at that book. And it's like, oh, wow, there's this whole structure here. So I'm sure to you, when people talk about like, well, technically you should do this and not that, you're probably like, Jesus Christ, like you don't even have the baseline intellectual framework with which to very easily resolve all these issues. It's like thinking about why some animals have ears like this or some have ears like that without ever seeing natural selection evolution, exactly. like origin yeah. of species. Read that book. Read that book. And I, I promise you, everything makes a lot more sense. You know, Look at me. I, I just compared the two of us to Charles Darwin. How's that for an eagle? I think it's that? appropriate. I think that you know, he probably needs to up his game, which he can't do because he's fucking dead. Dead and not as jacked as us. Take not this, Charles. Close. Not even close. So, I, yeah, you know, I was actually having this conversation with someone where I was trying to, this was someone not in the exercise world. And I was sort of saying that because they were asking, what's, what is my problem with a lot of people in fitness? And I said, <laughs> they, I was like, well, you know, that's a good question. And I'm going to try to answer it unemotionally. I, I was like, you know, I think that they're like, they get excited about tools. You know, it's like they get mm-hmm. excited about hammers. And I like hammers, too. They're great. But overall, like I get excited about making better blueprints so that I can streamline the construction of houses that make sense in certain environments uh, that are now more energy efficient, make more sense, and that anyone can build going forward into the future. And, you know, that is is so I want the entire framework for how it how it works. And to be able to create that, I need a taxonomy of all the parts that go into making a house and then to create a hierarchy of the sequence and the layering of how you would go about uh, building these things yes. in general. And yes. Brilliant. Dude, I, I have I had so many conversations, especially back in the day where, you know, people would say, now I can just be like, hey, just read this book and it'll tell you about it. Watch these YouTube videos. But um, I'm sure you had about 10,000 of these conversations where I'll, I'll stick with your excellent uh, house blueprint analogy. Someone will say, you know, analogically to training. So are you like a hammer nails kind of guy? Or are you like a saw kind of guy? Like what? Well, it depends on what I'm trying to do, man. It's so a people are like, are you a machines kind of guy or a free weights kind of guy? And it's like, Oh, come on, man. Yeah. We can do better than this. We can right. It's like asking some guy like who works for like Volkswagen, like see so you into like, bigger cars or smaller cars like do you like big wheels or the rims it's like you mean like a matter of personal preference or like vehicle design like i design vehicles right. for express purposes and the thing is like in automotive design these principles of automotive design have been distilled and refined and formalized enough to where you know gee you can go to school and get a degree in automotive design if you can get a degree in it it's pretty fucking formal it probably teach you a lot it, it would it would be really stupid if someone came up to you at a party and was like so you in the wheels or steering wheels would be like yeah get out of here right but, uh, with the our industry of um you know fitness training uh, so many people first of all don't go to school and second of all so many schools teach kind of like a smorgasbord of like hey this works like i remember like um when i was an undergrad it was like the strength training section for a class was like a week long and they're like you know sets of five they're great anyway (laughs) wow that's it like that's great you you like it's the tantamount to to preparing someone for uh, a home building expertise and being like here's how you use a hammer go out there and fucking put some boards together and knock it around it's like you know, I, we could do better than this. We could do better. It is this, I they, just people pull things out of the ether at random almost. And it's kind of like, well, why are you doing this thing? And like the level of going into why just stops 
so abruptly and suddenly that it's kind of like, oh, okay, there is no why. It's just sort of like, uh, it's, it's, it works. Yeah. And, and oddly enough, because I do find it kind of fascinating that even with that as kind of the operating level that the fitness industry is, is at, people, if they at least participate in it, usually don't get hurt or too fucked up. And they usually do get some level of results as long as they stick with it. So mm-hmm. I'm always impressed with the ruggedness of human beings as animals, uh, which I shouldn't be because we can survive literally fucking anywhere, especially compared to other animals. Like you sure. live somewhere super inhospitable and like the horses die before the humans do. You go into a yeah. fucking coal mine, the canaries are just falling over left and right. And so it's kind of like we are these super badass like top level apes that like literally can live fucking anywhere and like you bring other animals to places and they're like ah fuck i'm done you know you can't yeah. bring alligators to the fucking north pole they're fucked and polar you bears and... little spacesuit where they have their own little water container yeah they kind of sweet <laughs> yeah it, a lot of times like that you bring up a really great point there because humans are complex adaptive systems with a relatively robust and open-ended adaptive ability to any kind of resistance, um, you know, it's hard to get no results. Um, and so any, and, you know, most of the people in the fitness industry as a fraction at any one time are beginners because there's such a huge throughput to the industry um, that, you know, you could be a quote unquote successful personal trainer. If you only ever like take three months to slap on five pounds of muscle and take 10 pounds of fat off of everyone you've ever trained. And the thing is, you know, how much do you really know? Well, you may know preciously little. And if someone's like, hey, I want to really get ultra jacked and super lean, turns out you can't help them with that because you're like, well, I have this one trick and all I know how to do is get people going a little bit. And I don't know. And, and another thing is like, what about people with problems? Mm-hmm. Like if you're like, hey, squats build big legs and someone's like, hey, I can't do squats because my knees hurt. And you're like, oh, you're just doing them wrong. You inspect how they're doing it. They're doing it really correctly. And their knees still hurt. And I go, well, should I do other exercises? And you've just never given that any thought because you just have the one hammer and everything is a nail. And all of a sudden your ability to adapt on the fly requires a principles-based approach of, okay, so walk it back. What is it that I'm doing with squats? Stimulating the quadriceps, compound pushing movement through a large range of motion. Uh, is there any other way I can accomplish that? But if you can't answer that underlying basis of just to use squats equal big legs, as soon as someone for whatever reason can't squat, well, let's say they were in a car accident, their fucking hips are in three different places with 10 different screws in them. Like, look, I can't squat. They're like, well, I guess you won't have big legs anymore. Like, maybe that's not true. So mm-hmm. at some point, I think to me, one of the reasons I had to um, discover and formalize the principles of training was that I was so uncomfortable and still am with uncertainty. I hate it. I hate not knowing stuff. I hate someone asked me like, hey, why do you do this? And this other person does that. It drives me insane. I don't want to be doing serious because like some people say, well, Louis Simmons does this and you say that. Well, I want to be able to know that I'm doing the right thing. And if he's doing the right thing, I want to do what he's doing. I don't want to be like, well, there's different ways to skin a cat, brother. You know, people say that kind of stuff. Um, you know, there, I, my, my retort to that is um, there are absolutely different ways to skin the cat, but they can be rank ordered by efficiency, uh, the degree of perfection, they're like a speed, and also how much the cat hates it or doesn't hate it. <laughs> Just kidding, that's quite morbid. The cat always hates it. But, um, so as a first first skinning cat, inject massive amount of morphine. Doesn't matter how good of a job you do, cat loves it. So in any case, it's one of those things where if I'm going to be spending a large fraction of my time, especially as a personal trainer or coach, giving people results, 
I had better be doing a good job to try to figure out the ultrastructure of the, the, the small part of the universe we live in in the fitness industry, such that the, I can inspect its topography and arrange training and diet in such a way that it's at least a decent guess at what's a good idea, as opposed mm-hmm. to just like, well, I know some things that work. I mean, can you imagine taking your money in Wall Street to a guy that's like, hey, man, I have the strategy for investing. It's great. And he doesn't even understand the price system. It's just a strategy that's worked for him in the past. Like, what are you nuts? Like, I, I want people investing my money that are like, look, we have a very principles based approach to investing. You won't make any money in the short term, but over the long term, it's almost a sure thing. Like, mm. I'm going to go with that shit. These people actually thought the shit through. It's a, what I would call a serious attempt at, at financial planning or a serious attempt at strength training or body composition or movements. Like, if you want a serious attempt, you're going to have to try to understand the this slice of the universe in, in which you occupy as well as possible. And the best way to understand something or the result of understanding something well is to boil it down to a set of dependable principles that have very good predictive validity and very good uh, predictable interactive effects with one another. We can you know, like when you're building a car, they're like, well, it's how much the car weighs, how much gas the car has, how big the wheels are, how powerful the engine is, uh, the size of the frame and all of these interact in very predictable ways, ways that you can teach ways that result in, pretty predictable effects on actual performance. Like, can you imagine saying like, okay, hey, we've got this car and I want it to go as fast as possible. Uh, should I make it heavier or lighter? All things give it equal. Who the fuck's going to say heavier? You have to be out of your fucking mind. But in, in strength training or, or movement, some people be like, well, make it heavier because my dad, he had a hemi, heavy as fuck, man, that thing pulled. Woo! And you're like, all right, that's not really a whole lot of thinking going on. So just because I hated that sort of colloquial approach, um, and I couldn't, I could barely repeat it myself. It was painful for me to be like, do squats. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why? I'm like, cause they work. I want a better answer than that. Cause when I'm trying to fall asleep at night, I want a better answer for myself. I have to do squats too. And they work. It just doesn't cut it. You know, you know, I really love the way that you were able to address the interrelated nature of the variables and the scientific principles of hypertrophy book, where it's kind of like you're discussing tension and it's kind of like, yeah, tension has these concepts related to it. And we have this window that you can be in and it's all good. You get the same thing, but the logistics of it and the interplay with things like volume make these particular realms of it like more uh, reasonable, you know, and for these other factors, metabolites and mind muscle connection, like there are these elements that come into play that make utilization of things like compound exercises important but don't forget about single joint exercises because these factors like look they're like you're talking about with the skinning the cat analogy it's kind of like there's different tools that you can use for the different parts of the cat as well you know like the tail is going to be a lot different than working Mm -hmm. on the haunches and Mm -hmm. it's probably good to have an approach that's a little bit closer to what's going to make this most optimal and efficient to be able to get this kind of region because the body has its own little intricacies and idiosyncrasies that make certain approaches more reasonable to use at and at different times and stages of development as well. So it's, you know, the thing that I noticed when I first heard you present a few years ago was the if this then that nature of your thought process as it comes to program design. And that ultimately kind of funnels into like a logic tree for guiding people through how to go about progressing themselves or determining that they should maintain at certain points in times and hold or even back off based upon the responses that you're actually getting. So it, you know. 
I don't see an alternative to that, man. Because in my own mind, if I'm doing something, I go, what am I doing? Oh, do this. Why? And if I don't get a good answer, why the fuck am I supposed to be doing that shit? So if like, how much weight do I lift? A lot. Go heavy because it helps grow muscle. Why? You got to study a lot of science to figure out why. And as you're figuring out why, you realize, wow, this can be defined as what heavy actually means. What's too heavy? What's too light? And you look at other principles that interplay with this idea of heavy. Okay, heavy is good, but I need to do a certain number of reps. How many reps do I need to do? How close to failure do you need to be? And all of these things have to have their own independent whys and their own independent definitions of constraints. And then they have to interact with each other. And, and so that whole thing can be quite complex, but it's not very mysterious because the independent single, so like single spoke, single node connection reasons are actually quite simple. Like, so you can, anybody could really understand a part of it. It's just seeing that whole grand architecture, it, developing it for the first time takes a while. But the analogy to, to car design here, I think is, is very apt. It's like, imagine you have to make a car that goes from point A to point B. People are just easy. Wheel, engine, wheels, engine, steering wheel, done. Like, okay, sweet. But like, also it has to have a car radio. It has to be at least this good of a car radio. And that's going to draw a certain amount of amps from the battery. And also the car has to be big enough to house this many people, this level of comfort, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden you have this, when car design, hundreds of constraints. And each constraint, if you have a list of all possible, possible car designs, every time you introduce a new constraint, it nicks one right off. Like, nope, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. That stereo system is too powerful. Draw too many apps. This one's not powerful enough to project music to the back of the car. And all of a sudden, as you develop the, the system of requirements and needs, the number of right answers shrinks. And mm. eventually, there are certainly more than certainly more than one right answer because most problems are at least somewhat open-ended. But you can, at the very least, rest assured that you're in that small universe of mostly correct answers and you're not some idiot out here in this fucking universe of totally wrong answers. And that to me is like the, the very nature and purpose of systemization. You, you systematize a process in order to just be predictably correct most of the time. Like if you, if you're trying to brew your own beer and you find out how like, you know, great, what's a great beer company, Milwaukee's best. There you go. <laughs> JK. Stay calm. Beer fanatics, um, you know, you don't you see how, <laughs> they'll come at you with their beards and <laughs> and and uh, and high high highfalutin thoughts about what beer is good and what beer is bad. Uh, so, like, you know, if you're like a beer hipster and you're just getting into brewing your own beer, um, if you look at how like Anheuser Busch does their shit, you got to be like awestruck. Be like, oh fuck, they did think of everything. He's even doing the shit for 120 years. They realize like, well, if you do you know, this much hops or this much raspberry extra flavor or raspberry beer or whatever, you, you pay certain prices for texture, for flavor, for shelf life. And that's like one of those things where a lot of like local breweries make really good beer. And you ask just for the question of like, why isn't this nationwide distributed? Distribution's a motherfucker, man. And your beer might be great for a few days. And after a few days, it tastes like flat shit. And it doesn't even matter if you cork the shit right. It's just some property inside the beer that you didn't intend to. And like, how the fuck did the beer stay fresh for so long and can sitting on a shelf? Like, Anheuser Bush not going to tell you that shit. That's fucking top secret. And all of a sudden, you realize that they have systematized the world of beer to get to get very specific answers to specific questions. How do I get a beer can that has a year shelf life and it? it <clears throat> It's the same every time. And it, I can buy it in Anchorage, Alaska, and it's made in fucking Milwaukee. How the fuck does that work? Well, they have to get a lot of correct answers. In order to get a lot of correct answers, you have to understand the system of thoughts around beer. For me, this, that was the same thing with strength training. I wanted to be as strong as I could possibly be. 
Now that answer is I want to be as jacked as I could possibly be. And I sure as hell wanted to get athletes that I was helping to be as strong as possible. How could I even attempt to guide them in that direction without myself looking for a systematic way to deliver that? Because the ultimate answer is like, you know, what kind of athlete do you want to go up against at the Olympics? Do you want to go up against a guy who's like raw genetic talent and his coach is like an old timey, like Rocky Balboa type motherfucker who's like, nah, see, man, we did it the old school way. Like, you know, old curmudgeonly Jewish asshole. Or do you want to go up against an athlete that is from some country where they systematize the training process. It'd be like, they've thought of everything and it's all scientifically minded. And they've been tracking his performance, tracking his fatigue, et cetera. Like, I don't want to go up against that other guy. That guy's a fucking machine. It's like, you know, it's like the, like the U S military versus Russia, which may be happening in the next several weeks or months. Hopefully it doesn't, but like if it happens and if the war stays conventional, watch motherfuckers, because like, Russia's approach to the military is like, here's guns, here's bombs, shoot them that way. It's fine. And America has like the most systematized approach to combat ever. And it's, just, it's kind of a wash. It's, it's not going to be a fair fight. Uh, you want to be the person in the room that understands the topography of the landscape, the best, the, the ins and outs, because then you can design interventions to give you the best possible results, given, of course, your genetics or whatever, right? So, you know, like, actually, this is a perfect time. Ukraine is getting, uh, has been getting training and advice from NATO countries for years now for how small their military and underpowered it is. They're fucking Russia up big time. How the hell are they doing that? Well, morale is a huge thing. But also, like, they're just better at fighting war. Why? Because they operate by certain principles that are just known principles, and Russia just does backwards, dumbass shit that they should know better. And it's one of those things where if you are a hardworking person in, let's say, New York City, and you want to work with someone to get in shape, don't you want to give your money to a person that's thought it through systematically? Like, for me, like, if I want to go to Aruba with my friends from accounting in three months, I want to be in fucking some good shape, goddammit, because Aruba... They have the, you know what I'm saying? The guys over there speak that shit, that accent. I want, you know what I'm saying? I've seen that. What is that movie with the, oh my God. I, all, all my whole brain is filled with early 90s movies. Waiting to exhale. You know what I'm saying? You go to the Caribbean and some fine ass black man puts his hands on you and it's all revitalizing and shit. If I want that to happen, I want that motherfucker to notice me. And so I have three months to train. I don't want just some regular asshole at a New York sports club being like, do this. Right. You're like, yeah. Why? And he's like, I'm in shape. Watch this. You're like, okay. But if you have someone who systematized it, you can be sure that right before you go to Aruba, you really just, you took a professional attempt at fitness and you got as good of results as you could. And to me, doing anything less for clients is kind of fucking ripping them off. I don't yeah. know. I, you know, I was reminded a bit of like the, the Crimean war with what you were talking about, which, you know, historically was at like this incredible junction of when war became industrialized. And, you know, it was the kind of precursor to World War One, which was like the fucking industrial war nightmare that the first the industrial war had no idea that, you know, they could have learned a few lessons from the American Civil War, which was a little bit sooner and yes. did demonstrate some industrialism. But the Crimean War was this interesting matchup of like this old school medieval horses charging and then fucking cannons yes. and heavy artillery just Terrible. blowing horse meat all over the fucking plains. And um, it's kind of like, whoa, like, fuck, we tried hard, uh, right. and but it <laughs> right. didn't compare to this machine, like, you yes. know, empirical yes. process of, yes. like, standardization, progress. And, and like, I mean, I've, I've been saying for a while, like, I don't know if there's a God, but I do believe in progress. And if I'm going to accomplish progress, I first and foremost want to create standardization. And if I don't have standardization, I cannot compare variables when I toggle them. 
And so I get very obsessive with standardization of as many things that I can, which makes me a lot of fun to hang out with. But in, in I don't have any friends either. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like the more things that are uniform, now I can evaluate a single adjustment. Otherwise, I have no idea what's actually happening. Um, I you could know, have said it better. I, I really, one of the topics that I've been very interested in of late is the is the notion of maintenance. I find maintenance to be really fascinating. And, you know, I, I noticed in in the later chapters of your hypertrophy book, it talked about advanced programs and how certain athletes can, well, you know, if you really want to be able to grow certain muscles, you should look to maintain the size of other muscles. And I, I you know, the question I have, I, I've heard, you know, some research that'll show like one set to failure per week might be enough to maintain tissue. But I'm, I'm kind of curious if you have uh, more of a real world or, or a better understanding of like about how much volume it takes to maintain muscles. And if there's differences between muscle groups around the body in any predictable uh, format. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so there's differences between muscles in the body and there's huge differences between individuals. Um, but generally speaking, uh, to me, I'm comfortable stating that maintenance volume in most cases is one third or less the amount of volume that it takes to get the uh, best progress that you can see. So for example, if about 15 sets of quad work per week gets you your best results, which for many people is roughly in that area, um, you shouldn't be doing a program to maintain your quads that has any more than about five sets per week. Under certain circumstances, you could do as few as two sets per week and still maintain all of your quad size. I'm fairly confident that if Monday and Thursday, respectively, you got on the hack squat or you got on the leg press and you did one psychotic set of 20 repetitions, you would not lose leg size. Two mm -hmm. sets a week could very well just keep all your leg size uh, for an extended period of time. I would say that if you're doing for maintenance any more than five or six sets, if your average best results, your MAV, maximum adaptive volume, is around 15 sets per week, you're almost certainly, in almost all cases, just doing too much. Now, you don't pay a huge price for that. It's a bit of a subtle distinction. You pay a price of opportunity costs and of systemic fatigue and of time constraints. So like, if you're trying to really bring up your chest and arms, just doing that work could take so much out of you that you neither have extra time to really hit your quads with due diligence, nor do you have the systemic fatigue tolerance. Like you're so beat up from all your other workouts. You're like, fuck, now I got to train quads. And in that position of fuck, now I got to train quads. If the answer to your training is, oh, I do four sets of quads per week and I'm good. Or if you think the answer is eight, or like many people, I'm sure you've run into this, Pat, where many people actually don't understand or don't understand is, a, is, is, is too strong a word, uh, actually gives them too much credit. They don't know that maintenance volume is theoretically smaller than, than maximum adaptive volume. Like mm -hmm. they, they actually like, uh, I've talked to athletes about this for years and years and years, regular people. They think that as soon as athletes back away from like the grind pushing training, they start to recede. I remember there's this one time um, I was watching a great documentary about Korean um, break dancers. They're the best break dancers on the planet. It's not really a controversy. And they have a compulsory military service at some point. They have to take up until age 27. So they could delay it, but age 27 is the cutoff, and which like either you go to jail or you go to the military. So like, I think they go to the military for something like two years, something like that. And this one guy's like, yeah, 
you know, it's, it's a very Korean thing to say. He's like, yeah, I just got to get as much of the sin as I can. Cause you know, once you go to the military, you lose all of your skills, all of them. Are you out of your fucking mind? Hilariously. He went to the military, came back and was still dominant for years, <laughs> but it's just like, you know, you could like, practice a few basic skills in the bathroom twice a week and come out pretty goddamn fresh after two years and within three months be as good as you ever were breakdancing but he to him it was either push a thousand percent or it's disaster which is a very asian thing of course to think but like a lot of people think that they just have no idea so they would be in this position where like dude how do i bring up my chest and arms you're like here's like the volume you could try and here's the frequency like man i don't know how i'm going to be able to train my legs with that bro I'm like oh it's okay just do five sets they're like I'm going to lose my legs then. Like, no, you're fucking not. Maybe you'll lose your legs if you do one set a week, but five sets a week, man, like, a, you know, whatever it is, a third of the volume that you've been doing to progress. And this is multiple studies have confirmed this. And a third I used because a third is usually the top end in most cases. So there was at least one study I'm familiar with where one, one ninth of the volume still kept like 90% of the gains after six months. Like one ninth, holy fucking shit. That means you do 18 sets for your side belts per week. Just two sets can get 90% of the side belts to stay where they are. That's a huge revelation. That allows us such a huge um, leverage point for designing programs because it can really allow us to lean in to prioritization phases and say, look, you really have to bring up your chest. It's all chest all the fucking time, as much as your chest can recover. Like, what about everything else? Like, it's not that hard. You just train everything minimally. And the thing is, this is just theory. I've tried this shit. And of course you get this like sensation at first when you're trying to, you're like, I'm moron. I'm going to lose all my muscle. Goodbye. And then a couple weeks later, you're like, I don't, I haven't lost any muscle. And then a couple weeks later, you come back and start doing regular training again. And you hit like multiple PRs in the first three weeks. And you're like, Oh, I really didn't lose anything. How the fuck am I going to lose muscle and hit a bunch of PRs a few weeks later? So it's, it's real. And that knowledge is one of those things we were talking about. Like if you know the system and how it works, you can start to exploit some really, really cool shit. You know, like uh, if someone says, hey, like, you know, this engine runs hotter or cooler than this other engine. If you, you know, have a car that generally runs hotter, you can install the cooler engine. It can solve a lot of problems. Whereas if you didn't know that that was even a possibility, you're just going to make shittier cars. You know, I don't know right. what to say. You know, I have a couple more questions just because I do want to respect your time and also not let this thing extend. I have 11 minutes total. Okay. <laughs> yes. Perfect. So, you know. I appreciated your discussion regarding why sets are the critical variable to play with for, you know, pro progressive overload or maintenance, like whatever volume landmark you want to be at sets sure. is the thing that you play with. And I was curious, like outside of the realm of hypertrophy, if you wanted to talk about developing speed or developing some other physi physiological quality. You know, I would assume in some ways you have to still work within these realms of ex keeping its specificity in terms of uh, velocities and vectors and things like that, motor patterns. Would you think that the same concept would probably ultimately apply to other physiological qualities outside of hypertrophy? Yes. And they actually apply to almost everything else in which complex adaptive systems are, are being toggled with because the volume landmarks are just, they can be talked about as uh, anytime I say this in the drug context, it sounds funny, dose, dosing landmarks, yeah. but you know, we're talking about dose in medicine and, and dose in, in sport training and everything. Um, you know, it's originally the term was minimum effective dose. And I actually updated that term to be minimum effective volume 
because min effective dose can refer to intensity, it can refer to relative effort, it can refer to a bunch of stuff, but uh, dose is just very general. But because dose is very general, it applies to almost all systems. Like for, if you're training gymnastics athletes, they have a certain amount of skills to work on and, and physiological subsystems that pour into those skills. So the iron cross is like something you got to do. You got to have really strong various muscles of the body to be able to do it. So you have to split that up and assign work to all of those. And you have to know how much work to assign. You have to know how much work is enough. You have to know how much work is too much. And thus volume landmarks apply to all that. I will say like the distance between minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable volume uh, is quite high in some uh, uh, pursuits like bodybuilding, mm-hmm. for example, it's mm-hmm. lower. So the, generally that, that distance shrinks as the intensity goes up. So yep. Y- yep. Y- you want to see a, a really big difference between the minimum effective and maximum recoverable, go to marathon runner yes. uh, athletes, yep. but holy fuck, like that distance is 40 miles. <laughs> uh, you get to hypertrophy, it's 10 sets. You get to strength training, it's three to five sets difference. You get to power training. It's like, gee whiz, you only really do any either two to five sets of anything at any one time. And five sets of one move in a power train is usually overkill. And then the speed, it becomes even smaller. And then modulating the intensity, the velocity, the relative effort, those become bigger factors, technique. Um, so it's still, you know, volume stuff is still a thing. It's just less of a thing as intensity becomes the, the dominant that makes, variable. That makes perfect here. sense. Essentially kind of the greater the window of adaptability for that particular system the larger the gap between the landmarks. Usually, and, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and also just how much total volume the system can throughput. Usually the yeah. minimum effective maximum recovery is different. Actually, you do bring up something quite interesting. Um, and this is a bit of a somber discussion that you have to have with athletes on occasion. Uh, you did say there's a window of adaptability as it shrinks, the volume makes less and less of a difference. Um, uh, this is something that if, if really chewed down to the bone, by lots of athletes, especially younger ones, would defund the enhance your sprint speed before your college tryouts industry by like uh, 80% because a lot of sprint drills and all this other stuff, they work. Almost all of them work. But, you know, if you're not just fucking plain old fast when you're a teenager, there ain't nothing in the world that's making you world champion. Whereas if you're not jacked as a teen, fuck, you could just be fucking enormous. It's also not even a drug thing. There's tons of drugs that make you more jacked. Pat, how many drugs do you know that make you faster? Like really a lot faster. Like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, you know, like sprinters take Winstrol. Like if you take yeah. a, a month of Winstrol, sure, you'll get a little faster maybe. But like, you know, sprinting is, is I've described in various courses I've taught, something like 90% genetic. And that means, yes, training is very important at the margins, but how much total training difference it makes is really quite small. And it's kind of like, I don't know, is, it, is that depressing or not? I can't tell. I guess it's just reality. Reality, yeah. That's, that's uh, I think, what it really comes down to. I find it fascinating because I look at it like if I think that people that train racehorses know a hell of a lot about how to train animals and also like the if you kind of look even at nature, the number of full speed sprints that animals will do, it gets fewer as they get faster. Yes. And, you know, like cheetahs run like the fewest number of high speed runs in nature and then spend this enormous chunk of time doing these very low intensity activities. And horses, it's like much, they get fewer fast runs as compared to fast humans. And it's yes. like a very linear graph if you actually look at it. 
they have to do a lot of trotting and aerobic kinds of easy runs. And then yes. they can really go get it like a couple times a week. A yes. human gets more of those things. It's like yes. a drag car versus a Prius sort of a concept. Exactly. Exactly. And if a Prius could go 300 miles an hour, it wouldn't be able to do that all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. It's just, a, I think there's like a kind of a cultural thing there where I think a lot of uh, maybe kids. So for example, if you're a kid's parent and your kid is like pretty fucking slow for high school football, and he doesn't need to go to college to play ball. He's going to have a great career anyway. Your family's smart. You got money, blah, blah, blah. But you want him to go to high school to play college football because well, wouldn't that be great, right? So you think, okay, junior's not that fast. Like I myself, I'm the dad. And like I, I remember training for football. And I, 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 since then, I became a pretty good fun runner, you know, doing 5Ks and stuff. And I know how much work it takes. And I know that when I started doing 5Ks, I was awful. And I literally slashed my times in half since then. And you go, hey, like, you know, ostensibly we could do the same thing for sprinting for junior and you pay some fucking sprint coach $600 a fucking hour or some stupid shit. And w- what comes of that is his 40 gets down from five, six to five, 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 five or some shit like that. And then it's like, Oh God damn it. Like I just kind of wish more people knew that kind of stuff. So they wouldn't piss away yeah. their money on shit that barely works. Well, Mike, I know we're, we're, we're here for time. Is there um, anywhere you want to tell people where they can find you? You know, nowhere, man. I'm so, I don't, I don't want to be found. Makes sense to me. So it makes as much sense <laughs> as that needs to. Um, probably the best place to find me now is YouTube. So it's just like YouTube by name or your Renaissance periodization, Dr. Mike Isertel, Dr. Mike Muscle, anything. You'll find my not so good looking face. Click on a video. Make sure your coworkers aren't around. Make sure your kids aren't around. I swear on the videos. They talk about Satan a lot. Isn't he great? Just uh, he's, 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 I always praise his name. Look, I man, always take the time. I, I just feel like if if like this pathway that humans describe, as far as like how you would get to heaven, like all the interesting people are not there. I don't want to hang out with whoever it is that makes it there. Let's go have barbecue where it'll be fun with the fucked up delinquents, with with the sinners. That's that's yeah. where I want to be. At least as far as my browsing history is concerned. People Very pay so much money to hang out with the sinners, anyways. Like, what's making and more hell? Money? It's free. Yeah. Yeah, Amazing. you get it forever. You don't. You just <laughs> it's you free forever. Yeah, it's the ultimate Ponzi scheme. That's real. <laughs> uh. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Been a pleasure, man. Pat, thank you so much for having me on, man. Anytime.